All right, you guys got it figured. Ooh, that was loud. Sorry, you guys got it figured all out. I'm gl really glad we have some amazing and truly impressive people. That's one of the unique things, obviously, about uh, being here in Midland. Is set that down. All right. Uh, having such a highly qualified, highly competent board, and not only board, but subcommittee and subcommittee and subcommittee after that. I mean, we got PhDs stacked all the way down to our ushers, so we're good, okay? Don't worry. They got it figured out. Just come ask questions if you have any. Praise the Lord. My name's Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy. I get to preach here. I'm delighted that you come to worship here. We hope that you'll not only worship, but you will connect and serve as well. Uh, this week, like many weeks, uh, my family is loading up the car. That's a big deal. <laughs> it, you know, for you, it, I don't know where you're at in life, but that may mean, hey, let's go get in the car. Okay, we put our coats on, we get in the car. For us, it means, come on, get out the door. Let's go. Well, hopefully not that bad every time, but it is tricky loading up the troop hauler with lots of children and getting everybody's coats and everybody's jackets and everybody's lunches and everybody's homework and everybody's this and everybody's that all piled in at one time. And it's kind of a process which takes some people a few minutes, takes us about 15, and eventually we get everyone in the car. And I remember one time this week, I was going out the door, and I was intentionally leaving early, so everyone's staying behind, and I'm looking at various people in different spots and thinking to myself, okay, you're there, good, and you're there, good, and you're there, good, and you're there, and okay, got everybody here, and I'm like, all right, oh, I'm leaving them there, what am I doing? I'm like, Jesus, come on, let's go, you're coming with me. <laughs> I need somebody to go with me throughout this day. In other words, I'm going to leave my family here, and I know for certain that they're going to be in their places because I've left them there, and we will be separate throughout the rest of the day, but I need someone to go with me. I know what I'm going to face today. I know the conversations I have, and there's a lot of uncertainty in those, and they may be difficult or this or that, but at the end of the day, I want someone to hold my hand and walk with me. Um, Jesus, do you mind? <laughs> Get in the car. Let's go. Here we go for our day. In Genesis chapter 39, it describes uh, Joseph's uh, perils, the guy in the Old Testament, and he had an interesting life with a bunch of older brothers and lots of kids in his family too. And obviously they didn't load up the minivan, but they did go out and take care of their sheep. And I wonder what it was like for him one morning when he thought he was going out for a normal day of work. And all of a sudden along the way, he discovers that his brothers are going to betray him and throw him into a pit and contemplate killing him, but in the end decide selling him because they could get more money by selling than by killing, and then his life seemingly going downhill from there. He winds up in Egypt, he's serving as a slave, he's ostracized from his family, and eventually he even comes to the point where he's accused of taking advantage of his master's wife and he's thrown in prison, not really knowing whether he's going to live or die. In my mind, I would be somewhat at the end of my rope thinking, man, what in the world just happened here? This was not how I intended today to go. What a path. Wow. 
And you watch this character throughout the Old Testament, and obviously he's an amazing individual because at every point he has the opportunity to sin, he chooses not to, but instead he follows after God consistently over and over again. And yet, he's thrown in prison, he's taken advantage of, and he loses nearly everything he has. If we come at this story from the world's perspective, we would say, ha, see what you get for following God? <laughs> Not a very good life. But there's something more that the biblical author wants you to see, and that is in verse 21 of Genesis 39. So despite all of these travails, despite everything that happened to Joseph along the way, strangely enough, even in these horrible situations, it says, the Lord was with Joseph, that God was walking with him and even through all of that showed him his steadfast love. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. I saw some of you begin to mouth the words to that psalm this morning. You've probably heard it before around Thanksgiving. And so I'd actually like to give you a chance to do something we don't always do in our church, and that is participate and say these words out loud. And so uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to read Psalm 118. The first four verses have sort of a double reframe, a, a call and a response. The, the worship leader, the priest, or the, in this case, the pastor today would call out the first line and give you the opportunity to call out the second. The second is... His steadfast love endures forever. So we'll do that four times. We'll go through the rest of the verses. And then at the very end, verse 29, you'll have one more chance to do it there at the end of that psalm. But please be paying attention because you will have another chance at some unspecified time to do it today during the sermon. So you'll be waiting for that. This is your warm-up, your training, and your practice. And then later, you'll have the real test. Okay, so here we go with Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Let all of Israel say, Let the house of Aaron say, Let all those everywhere of all time who fear the Lord say, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. See if these lines sound familiar. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, we pray, O Lord, grant us success. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I thought about today's sermon on temptation, you know, there's a number of different ways you could approach it. And as I studied this text, what became quickly evident to me 
also from last week as well, is that when you consider temptation and trials and tests and the difficult and the hard things that we go through in life, for us as human beings, the temptation in all of that is sort of to follow the worldly wisdom and say, you know what? This is your fault, God. I mean, if you're powerful, if you're good, and you could have prevented it, then why didn't you? Therefore, some one of those assumptions is wrong. Either A, you're not good, or B, you're not all-powerful. And so we tend to end, if we go down that track, at this logic of saying that, you know what, Lord? This is all your fault. But James, as he, as he instructs his sheep, he says to them, hey, look, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted for God. Don't ever come to that conclusion. Why? Well, here's two reasons. One, God can't be tempted with evil. He's completely impervious. He doesn't even get touched by this stuff. And secondly, he himself never sends bad things. He never tempts anybody. But what happens is, is when each person is tempted, he is lured or enticed by his own desire. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But don't get fooled. Don't be deceived. Come on, pay attention, folks, for every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's not a single bit or shadow, or variation due to change. This is how all things occur. Of his own good purposes, of his pleasure, by his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Today we're talking about temptation in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. And the simple theme that I'm going to try to draw out today, if you're writing a main point, here's one way you could say it, is... Basically this, to overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Perhaps an easier way would be to say fight fire with fire or overcome desire with desire. And this is how we'll do so. There are three basic steps that I think you see playing out in this passage and I want you to um, have play out in your life as well. And that is this, it begins with the goodness of God and then there's a comparison between the difference between a temptation, which is from this, the evil one, and a test, which comes from God. And a difference between what is a good desire that God has given you and an evil desire, which comes from your flesh or from sin. And then there are some action steps which you can take in order to overcome evil with good. So we'll sort of walk through that process. And again, the reason I start with this psalm, or I... I begin with Joseph is because what I want you to see is that when you begin to consider evil and bad things and temptation and test, the place to, for your mind to go, the place to start to begin your thinking is the assumption, the full guarantee of the goodness of God. That is the place to start. That's the baseline. We just say we don't know necessarily how to interpret all this other data, but we begin with this one fundamental bottom line premise that God is good. We start there. And we can't go in any other direction. Otherwise, it basically leads to um, complete nihilism. Just 
forget, hang it all, whatever, life stinks, we're done. That's the end of that logical train. But if you begin with this one, then you interpret uh, difficult circumstances with some other grid that says, okay, I may not understand this, I may not see how it's working, but I trust in the goodness of God, in the sovereignty of God, that somehow this is going to make sense. Now, it doesn't assign evil to him, but it says that there is a way through this, and it may or may not be known to me yet. So, we begin with the goodness of God, and let me just say it like this. This is a bold statement to say, and you wouldn't say it of anyone other than God, But I will say it like this, is that there is no possible way for God to be better than he is. There is no possible way for God to be better than he is. It is possible for us as human beings to improve perhaps in nearly every area of our lives. But for God, there is simply no way for him to improve. Deuteronomy says it like this. It says, he is the rock His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. In Exodus, they're comparing gods to the foreign nations around them. And he says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There is simply no comparison. Goodness, true goodness, eternal goodness, that which is completely free of all evil and inherently pure, is only to be found in God. So Psalm 16 goes about it like this, and it says, Look, Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. There is no good whatsoever to be had in life apart from God. I have no good, I have no good, I have no good apart from you. Therefore, what do I do? Well, I have set you before me always. Because, because you are at my right hand, I will not be shaken. If you weren't, I would be. When I encounter difficult circumstances, there would be no way around them were it not for your presence here with me now. Therefore, because you are here, even though Saul is trying to take my life, says David, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells Secure. For you will not abandon me to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life, and where am I fulfilled? In your presence there is fullness of joy. And where do I find pleasure? At your right hand forevermore. In other words, there is no possible way for God to be better than what He is. He is good, and all that is good dwells in Him. And our ultimate pleasure, our ultimate satisfaction, that which we truly enjoy, we get from Him. Of course, there's a lot of other things. There's candy, there's food, there's sex, there's entertainment, there's hobbies, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, when you truly come to know who God is, He is more desirable, more satisfying, more exciting, and more joyful than all of those other things. And I know some of you are sitting there and thinking, whoa, that's a pretty big claim. You know, that one thing I really, 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 really like. And I am telling you that when you get to heaven, if you haven't experienced it yet, that which you experience with God will be better than any 
physical stimulation or emotional excitement or anything that you've had yet to this day. That God is that good. That heaven is not boring. Heaven is not waiting around, you know, laying on a golden cushion, playing a harp. But heaven is infinitely exciting and exuberant on an eternal ecstatic high, being in the presence of God. That is the goodness of God, as best as I can describe it. Surely not close to what it actually is. So you begin when encountering something with the fundamental assumption that God is good. Start there. God is good. Then you ask yourself, well, is this temptation or a test? Now, here's a little hint. I'm not much of a sportsman. I fished a lot growing up, but that doesn't mean I caught anything. So what I've learned since being a pastor is that's one of the great things about being a pastor. You don't know, you don't have to know how to catch fish. You just need to know somebody who does, right? And then you say, okay, take me when they're biting, where they're biting, and show me what to use, and I'm good. That's actually happened to me here in this church before. Eric Johnson, he uh, took me fishing once. Thank you, Eric. And he also brought with me today these cool little toys. And this is actually a real hook for real fish that uh, one of Eric's distributors brought to him. This is a shark hook. Would any of you go for this? Probably not, unless you're a tiger shark off the coast of India looking for a great big chunk of meat. This is a huge hook, and it's rather obvious to us. This is a saltwater fish, and everything's different in that way. But one of the things that I have learned about fishing, even in the very little, little time that I've spent, is that if you want to catch a fish, the best place to start is with a hungry one. You don't want a fat, well-fed fish who you put the lure right in his front of his face and he's just going to look at it and say, oh, that's nice. You want one that's really hungry because you're either going to catch him because he's hungry or you're going to make him mad or excited or stimulated by that spinning object or whatever you put in front of his face. And so there's a lot of ways you can do that. One is you can have a giant hook, but that doesn't always work great. Instead, what uh, people will do is they will tie flies Okay, and this is an example of a perch that you would use to catch uh, musky on. It's a really beautiful fly with shiny, fancy, pretty things. My daughter would probably like it, but I wouldn't let her play, play with it. Why? Because hidden in all that fur, there is a hook. Now that's for a musky, but let's say you want to catch a salmon. If you'd like to catch a salmon, I have to be careful because this one is really tiny. There are little itty-bitty, itty-bitty, itty-bitty flies that can fit. Basically, I, I can't balance it too well, so I'm going to be careful. On my thumbnail. And they are so small. I mean, they are tiny, 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 tiny little bugs that in order to use them, you have to tie on the end of your fly line something called tippet. And this one is 0 .006 inches or 0.152 millimeters in diameter. So it is extremely, extremely small. So in other words, when you're going to catch a fish, what you have to do is, first of all, find what they want. Say, okay, the fish is biting on this. They're hungry. I'm going to give them that. But what I'm not going to do is 
tell them that there is a hook placed right inside of it and that on the end of that hook is a line that is tied and at the end of that line is me with a stringer and a fillet knife, okay? And my goal or my desire, my object is to say, yeah, I'm going to take advantage of their desire. I know they want it and I'm going to give it to them. And as soon as they do, I'm going to kill them and eat them and enjoy it. That's what you do. I guess you can catch and release, you know, but whatever. It doesn't work for the illustration very well. <laughs> Temptation operates in very much the same way. What happens is, is you have desires inside of you. And realistically, you would be foolish to pretend that you don't. We all long for something, and many of our desires are actually good, that God has given us those desires, whether they're for relationship or fulfillment or physical fulfillment or whatever, those things are good. But as you know, any desire taken too far can become destructive, and so what the devil does is he says, okay, I see your desire. And instead of filling it with God, instead of filling it with something good, according to its original intended design, I'm going to give you just a little tiny itty bit of something slightly different. It's what you want. Try it. Go ahead. It's not that bad. It's pretty small. It's one that's easily looked over. And all you have to do is just give it a one-time sample and you're good. What happens to the fish who one-time samples my lure? I yank it. And I pull that hook right through his jaw. And so too is Satan. When you come upon the temptation, he's going to tell you all kinds of lies about this is small. It's not that big of a deal. You can do it quick. Get away with it. Don't worry about it. Whatever. And then as soon as you do, whack. He pulls it back, sets the hook, and begins to reel you in. And his goal is not catch and release. He wants to kill you and fillet you and destroy you and eat you alive and watch you burn in hell. And it all starts with something really, 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 really small. The tiny desires that are sitting there latent within our hearts. And so here's the thing about desires. When, you're gonna over, when you want to fight sin, it's so funny. People will come to fight sin and they'll say, you know, okay, I'm just going to willpower through it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to blah, blah, blah. I'm going to do this ten times. And then after I do it ten times, I'm sure I'll be better. But the problem is that desire is still there. And the only way to really fight sin then is not just, you know, spray the surface and try to kill it, but go after the root itself. That you fight desire with desire. That in fact, when you try to overcome sin on your own, it's no good. But the only way to do it is by asking God to change your heart. Now, I've got just a little bit ahead of myself. So let me go back to the test here. So basically, the three things you need to know about temptation are these. Number one, temptation targets desire. Okay, so there's no desire. It's ineffective. Number two, uh, the source of temptation is Satan. And number three, the purpose is death and destruction. So it targets your own desire. It, um, the source is Satan, and the purpose is death and destruction. Now, tests, on the other hand, are slightly different. And here's what gets tricky is because we encounter something difficult in life, 
And we're always asking the question, okay, so is this from the devil or is this from the Lord? And sometimes it's distinctly defined. You can say, yeah, clearly this is from the devil and clearly this is from the Lord. But sometimes it's not. And the only difference is in that way is how we respond to it. So let me show you, let me remind you what we talked about in test last week. A test is like this. A test begins with a trial, not a temptation, not something evil, but it is something that you could turn into evil if you follow the wrong line of thinking. However, if by faith you accept that trial from God, then you understand that as a result of this trial, what God wants you to do is go to Him and pray more. And then as you pray more, He grants you His gracious gift of wisdom, which gives you the perspective to be able to see beyond the pain of the moment. Then you endure the trial faithfully, not walking away from God, but walking more closely to Him. And as a result, you grow and mature. Then as you grow and mature, you become more and more like Christ, and eventually you come to completion, at which point there is satisfaction and joy. And therefore, James, when he says, hey, you encounter trials, says you guys can count it all joy. Why? Because you like that horrible experience? No. But instead, because you're coming from the perspective that God is good. Therefore, I received this thing, and I'm not so sure about it. I don't really like it. It's not my choice, but here it is. And so how am I going to walk down this path? Well, Satan would have me say, God is not good, and I'll go the other way. That's a temptation. But if you say, okay, God is good and I'll follow his path, then what ends up happening is if you go through the process, you become more like Christ and that results in joy. And so you can truly then, when you receive that thing, not because you like it, but because you trust the overall process, you can count it all joy. So tests that come from God are different. Tests that come from God are designed not to lure you in, hook you, and kill you, but instead to refine and grow you. Tests are not evil, but they are good, and they are God's gracious gifts. That's why in James, James says it like this in verses 16 and 17. He says, look, every good and perfect gift is from above. Even if we don't consider it a gift. It is still good. So there are trials and tests which may come from God, and there is temptation and sin which comes from Satan. Sometimes they're difficult to distinguish, and sometimes they can be the same thing. Case in point, Abraham and Isaac. Now, God wants Abraham to demonstrate his faithfulness. Does God want human sacrifice? Of course not. Of course not. This is a test. Satan would have Abraham reject God's command and do something else on his own. But Abraham follows through with this very difficult thing that doesn't seem to make sense at all. God doesn't want us to kill people like that. And yet he obeys and God demonstrates, says, hey, look, this was a perfect demonstration of faith. So stepping back from this situation, let me show you how this works in salvific or redemptive history. Okay, it's hard to interpret sometimes in our own lives, but let me show you 
how these things play out over uh, long periods of time. So, consider the first one. When uh, Adam and Eve have children, Satan comes and says, okay, you're going to bless all the world through this seed. I'm going to kill one. God says, I'll give him another one. Satan says, I'll corrupt the entire world. God says, I'll cleanse it with a flood. Satan says, I will put your people in slavery and make them serve foreign kings. God says, I'll use it to embarrass the foreign kings, make fun of their gods, deliver them from Egypt, and enrich them in the process. Satan says, I will distract them by all the other kings surrounding them and cause them to want a king other than you. God says, I will use the Davidic line to eventually establish my kingdom and rule. Satan says, when the Messiah comes, I'm going to kill every baby boy throughout the entire town. God says, I will use it to fulfill prophecy and demonstrate how I deliver my son. Satan says, I will kill your son. God says, I will resurrect him and everyone else who believes in him. Satan says, I will bring all the nations and cause them to rise up against you. God says, I will make all the nations my footstool. Satan says, I will destroy the entire world. God says, I'll make a new one. Satan comes to you in your life and he says, I'm going to do this. And if you are not walking with God, that test or trial will turn into something that leads to your destruction. But if you are walking with God, then God will say, okay, let's walk through it and we'll use it for your perfection and your growth and your glorification. This is what happens when tests and trials come into our life. And so, the, uh, so James can say to us, look, count it all joy. Don't blame God. He's not the source of evil. He's always good. When something comes, it comes either A, from your own sinful desire, or B, from your enemy. And when it gets there, then you need to test or trust God through the trial or temptation. And if it's not from the enemy, then it's from the Lord. And that means it's a test meant to grow your faith. So whatever the situation is, regardless of whether it seems good or bad, or indifferent, or in between, the response is still the same. To submit yourself to God and trust in His leading. And that's kind of the cool thing. I actually remember a class once in seminary, and one of the guys said, hey, prof, how can we know the difference then between a temptation and a test and a trial? Which one is it? I mean, it, it, it all seems yucky. And the, and the answer was, you know what? It doesn't really matter which one it is. The response is the same. You simply believe in God, trust Him, pray more for His wisdom, and follow Him through the process. But if you say, you know, if you go down the other path, then you end up saying, well, God's a bad God, God can't prevent evil, yada, 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 and you walk off the edge of a cliff. The only way to deal with trials and temptations in our lives is to overcome evil with good. How do we do that? Number one, we dwell on the goodness of God and His greatness and His grandeur and His glory. We walk with Him. Number two, we fight desire with desire. Psalm 37, 4 says it like this. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, interpret that carefully 
Because some people want to say, oh, man, if I, you know, walk with God, then he gives me whatever I want. That's a good day. Well, what does it say? It says, delight yourself in the Lord, step one, and he gives you the desires that are in your heart that you have. In other words, the more closely you walk with God, the more you will want what he wants. You will desire what he desires. And in that way, the devil can't bait you or tempt you or draw you away. Instead, what you're hungry for is not the bad stuff, but the good stuff. And as you're walking more with God, then you desire more and more of him, and you desire more and more what he wants, and then you can pray in Jesus' name because Jesus says, yeah, that is actually according to my will. The idea of praying in Jesus' name is to pray according to his will. It's not a little thing we tack on to the end of the prayer to say, now this is my, you know, closer, which gets what I want, but instead in accordance with his person, with his character, with who he is, with his purposes for the world, in accordance with his gospel and his suffering and his sacrifice, in accordance with his resurrection, in accordance with his return and his desire for the glory of the Father, I ask for these things. Now how can you ask for that if that's some selfish thing that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God? (laughs) It just doesn't fit. But if you're asking for something that fits with that, then you can say, sure, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Because I know Jesus would agree with this request. And therefore, I have confidence in this prayer. So the way in which you deal with this is you begin, number one, assume that God is good. And number two, fight fire with fire. Delight yourself in the Lord and he gives you the desires of your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to do his work. Pray for wisdom. Pray that God will change your heart. This is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. And this is why preachers are always saying the same thing. You've got to read the Bible and pray. Why? Because that's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit wrote the Word, and the Spirit works in your heart. And so the only way for your heart to change is to ask the Spirit. I can tell you five new things to do this week, and you can try to do them, and that's great. But at the end of the day, that's just cutting off the head of the dandelion. And that's not actually getting to the root or the cause, which is the heart. Your desire, what's in you. As long as that desire is still there, the devil can come right after it and bait that hook over and over again. And you say, well, why is this not working? Because the desire is still there. You have to want something different. And I can't make you change your wants. And I'm not sure that even you can make you change your wants. Only the Holy Spirit of God himself can change your wants. And that's why it goes back time and time again to the same old thing, which is read your Bible and pray. Because it's through the work of the Spirit, which is the Word, and through His communication to your heart, is your heart changed. Dwell on the goodness of God. Fight fire with fire. Overcome evil with good. And ask God to change your heart. Whenever bad stuff happens, remember the word of James, which says, hey, look, don't be deceived. God never sends evil. He's so good, he's impervious to it, he can't be tempted by it, he's not touched with it, he doesn't send it. If something bad happens, that's either from the devil or the, own, the desires you already had. Instead, trust God through it and let him grow you. Look what happens to Joseph at the end of his situation. In chapter 50, it says this, when his, everything was kind of said and done, coming to fruition, he's delivered from 
um, his slavery. He's, well, not his slavery, but his um, imprisonment. He's uh, at the top of the ladder now. His brothers come to him, the same ones that sold him. And, they, and when Joseph sees them and speaks with them, it says that Joseph wept when he spoke with them. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Hey, <laughs> not my servants. Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Would I assign evil to God? No way. Have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like his? Have you commanded the morning since your day's begun and caused the dawn to know its place? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Do you, have, do you give the horse its might? Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? And Job answered, behold, I am a small account. What answer shall I give you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Joseph answers the same way and says, as for you, oh, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love. May the steadfast love of the Lord our God be with you now and forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Father, we thank you and praise you, for you are good. Indeed, many things come into our lives, and a lot of times we don't even know what exactly they are. Is it a temptation? Is it a test? Is it a trial? I don't know. It doesn't seem good. Lord, if it's bad, it's not from you. And if it's because of my own evil desire, I pray for your forgiveness, and I pray that you would change my heart cause me to want you and you alone and want you more and more every single day. Lord, we praise you for who you are. We acknowledge that you are good. And we thank you that your steadfast love endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen.